Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ben, for the love of God, stop multitasking. We have a show to do. <laughs> yeah. By the way, you like my Band-Aid, Dennis? <laughs> you, you ever, uh, never heard, I've never had anyone ask me that in my life. Do you like my Band-Aid? Uh, so as... Uh, Loyal listeners to this podcast know this piece of beep alleged laptop that I own, which is one of the most worthless pieces of junk that has ever been sold by Best Buy uh, for reasons I will never know. And every millennial I know I've asked and even millennials don't know the camera stopped working. And it was the timing was perfect because I just had this operation with this left this hideous scar. And, you know, it's probably a good time that nobody see my face. You know what I'm saying, D? Uh, but now the computer has been invaded by a virus. I'm not making this up from outer space. If I were to open it up, you would hear a mechanical voice go, call this number right now. Do not try to close this computer. It's some kind of scam. This worthless. Anyway. All right. Well, listeners, so, now um, you know what's going on in Ben's life. <laughs> So I had to switch to a new computer, and uh, my distinguished guests can see me, and Dennis can see me. Let's get this show going, huh? I want an answer. It's not something you ignore. You're 100% full of shit, is what I think. If you think we <laughs> want offense, well, fuck you, then. Hey, who are you to I'm full of shit. Okay. Come on, Raylo. How many times have we told you, okay? This is how we warm up, Mick. This is how we warm up before show. All right, your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, July 14th, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, sometimes what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky, Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com, and if you want to help out this program, you can, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. It is Thursday, July 14th, and this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, he wants an answer. <laughs> Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Chicago's in the Universe Thursday, and here's why. Because Chicago is in the Universe, ladies and gentlemen. How do I know? I'll tell you how I know. My beloved bright one, Home Delivered. I'm showing my guests. Yes. Exhibit A. Home Delivered. So I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, though I admit it from time to time. Uh, being of the boomer uh, persuasion, I still get my news on a 24-hour news cycle, home delivered in a newspaper form. It's really embarrassing, folks. I'm, <laughs> and I generally don't read science news. I could, I mean, I would say I universally don't read science news. Bad joke. Um, but today, my beloved bright one put it right in my face. Apparently, did not know this. Uh, and a certain producer of the Ben Jarofsky show, who will go unnamed, didn't know it either. Uh, around Christmas of last year, a telescope was sent into space. 
That's the sound of the telescope being launched. Well, the telescope was actually attached to a rocket ship. All right, technicalities. Anyway, uh, they sent it way out in the middle of space, and about a month ago, it started transmitting pictures back to Earth, uh, and they've been presenting these pictures on the front pages of newspapers over the last few days, which I've ignored until it was in my bright one. (laughs) What did we discover? Any any life forms? Just like really weird pictures of things out in space that look like food. Like the first time I saw it, was, I thought it was a piece of steak, oh. but it turns out it was some cosmos thing. I don't know. But anyway, what I love about my beloved Bright One Home Delivered is that they always feel compelled to connect what's happening in the world to Chicago as if it wouldn't exist. <laughs> there would be no reason to pay attention if it's not Chicago. So, okay, they shut this telescope in the space. And they're taking pictures of outer space and they're sending them back. But did you know that there's a scientist at Northwestern who will be looking through the telescope? Did you know that, D? That's a Chicago connection, okay? It's not news until there's a Chicago connection. And like Chicagoans throughout the city, I'm just going, oh, wow, we matter. We're relevant in the universe. There's a Northwestern uh, scientist who will be looking through that telescope. And here's my favorite part of the story. I got to give Mitch Dudek credit. Apparently, Mitch Dudek is about as bored with uh, science stories as I am. So he felt compelled to flavor it a little bit. And we now know that the scientist, her name is Allison Strom, uh, has recently moved to uh, Chicago from, I think, New Jersey. And she's looking for an apartment in Ravenswood in Lakeview. Well, there we go. Which is my favorite little detail. (laughs) There we go. I love it, man. Okay. Who cares about the universe? All that matters. She may be your neighbor. Yeah, that's I. Oh my God, I said this to my beloved wife as she was walking out the door. Oh my God, the scientist. She's going to be moving to Ravenswood. And my beloved wife said she could be our neighbor. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to bring on the man, the myth, the legend, a dear friend of mine, uh, an old uh, colleague of mine. We do the hideout show together. We wrote countless articles for the reader together we would talk on the phone every day uh and come up with great ideas and thoughts for other articles the greatest ideas and thoughts sometimes never made it to print sad to say uh i like to think that i'm the john lennon and he's the paul mccartney of the greatest writing duo that has ever existed in chicago journalism <laughs> he's laughing because he wants to be john i'm sick of being paul mccartney ben uh without further ado the man the myth the legend the pride and joy of the whole state of michigan Mick Dumkey. Welcome back, Mick. Thanks, Ben. I mean, come on. You know I would always take Sir Paul. You 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 guys your Lennon thing. I'm always Sir Paul. Come on. Come you on. know what? I know we're not gonna allow this to deteriorate into discussion of the Beatles. Uh, which it could easily do, followed by an update on Bob Dylan, uh, Murder Most File, and then the Big Ten expanding. <laughs> Before we get to the topic of discussion that we really want to talk about, although I think Mick really wants to talk about the Big Ten expanding. The Big Ten is I'm much like kidding. the universe, Mick. It's constantly expanding. Always expanding. You're, we're still searching for the you know, origin story, uh, the Big Bang, as it were, that sent this all catapulting ever outward. So, yeah, it is an apt metaphor. Uh, anyway, uh, but back to the Beatles. I've been having, I've always been a John Lennon guy. Yes, it's true. But I've been having renewed appreciation for one Ringo star. And I want your thoughts on that briefly uh, before we turn uh, to the political news of the day, which, of course, is everybody wants to hear you talk politics, not Beatles. Actually, it's not really true. But 
<laughs> do you think Ringo Starr has earned a credit, has gotten a credit he deserves as the drummer for the Beatles? Well, he has been the drummer for the Beatles, uh, so he's gotten quite a bit of credit. He's had a pretty good ride, I would say. Um, you know, he wasn't a songwriter, so I think he has been dismissed in that way as not being up to the level of his bandmates. But uh, yeah, I'm in the camp that thinks that it's easy to overlook Ringo. Um, he was a fine timekeeper for the Beatles, you know, and uh, he had a, f a few decent hits of his own after the Beatles broke up too. So what, what bad things can you say about Ringo? Nothing. I'm just feeling re very Ringo-ish uh, lately and uh, filled with uh, appreciation for him. Uh, all right. Let's... I will say very quickly that my brother and I, as you know, Ben, I'm a, an avid uh, record collector, music fan and record collector. So my brother and I were sifting through the bargain bins at a local record store a couple of years ago, and we found a Ringo album. And I urged my brother to buy it. It's, it's Ringo. It's on Apple Records. How bad could it be? Well, it turned out it could be pretty bad. Uh, uh, I, again, I do love Ringo. This particular album, though, was like he was it was like a tribute album to the music of his youth. Like oh, the music, yes. music of his yes. parents' yes. generation. Yes. And it, it may not have been as bad as we thought when we put it on, but we were just expecting, we were expecting kind of cheesy seventies Ringo, not cheesy seventies Ringo doing like thirties and forties, you know, <laughs> British pop music Ringo. So yeah. it, it was, it was quite a surprise. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So it was horrible. Now here I am in the middle of this conversation, realizing why I never gave Ringo all the credit. I suddenly thought he deserves. <laughs> all right, Nick, let's talk some politics. Uh, absolutely sensational article uh, that uh, you and uh, your colleague, Paul Keogh must give him a shout out as well. Uh, just published in ProPublica. At the moment I read it, I reached out to you said, you've got to come on the show and talk about it. And I'm negligent. Johnny Mac Jr., John McDermott Jr., I've been negligent. I forgot to invite Mick for his last great story. We're going to bring him back. We're going to talk about that CHA story, which uh, was also a, a very important story uh, in the universe known as Chicago, the games people play uh, with the CHA and land and money. But this uh, Kenny, D, uh, Kenny G excuse me, story uh, was just Mickey, guys, you, you hit it right on the head. Uh, and Ken Griffin, as everybody knows, uh, well, used to be the wealthiest man uh, in the state of Illinois. Uh, he has essentially funded the Republican Party over the last 10 years or so. Uh, and he gave a lot of money, I believe, $54 million to uh, defeat the referendum that would have raised the tax bracket on rich people like him. Uh, and so the essential gist of the story is he spent $54 million to save untold tens and tens of millions of dollars over probably over a hundred million dollars. Uh, that is the, uh, the story in its essence, uh, Mick, take it away and explain, uh, let's, let's flesh it out a little bit. Yeah, well, you're right. Let's uh, get to the sort of the central point of the story um as you said ken griffin spent almost 54 million dollars um that he contributed that amount to the campaign against the graduated income tax in 2020 uh your 
listeners will remember perhaps with a shudder uh, that campaign because the ads were everywhere. You couldn't uh, go online, watch TV, turn on the radio without being bombarded with ads uh, either for or against the graduate income tax. So a lot of money that Ken Griffin put down uh, 54, almost $54 million. But what we found in the story, uh, based on tax data that ProPublica has obtained, that uh, the return on that investment was very good for Ken Griffin. So he uh, likely saved about $51 million a year based on his annual income that he's reported in recent years to the IRS. So he he paid almost $54 million. And in the very first year, he likely saved uh, $51 million in taxes that he would have otherwise paid if the, if the graduated tax initiative had gone forward. And that's just one year. So if you're talking uh, 50 or more million dollars a year, uh, putting $54 million down to stop those additional taxes was not a bad bet for, for Mr. Griffin. Yes. Uh, and so uh, this is the part of the story where you have to sort of distinguish between uh, what's policies pursued for the public good uh, and policies pursued for the private good. Uh, and uh, I must concede that uh, Ken Griffin did a masterful job uh, in terms of the commercials that he aired to defeat uh, the referendum of concealing the private good that he and his uh, billionaire colleagues would gain uh, from uh, freezing the um, income tax and instead promoting it as a larger public good that he was acting on. Do you agree with my uh, assessment? Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, obviously they were successful. We, they defeated or helped to defeat the graduating income tax. You know, Ben, just to remind everybody that at the time this campaign for and against the graduated income tax, the proponents, uh, starting with Governor Pritzker, called it a fair tax. So they were playing their own rhetorical games. But, um, you know, first of all, this is not something that's unusual out of the blue. We all you know, pay a graduated income tax on our federal taxes. That's a graduated tax system at the federal level. 32 other states have some kind of graduated income tax. So the fact that Illinois currently has a flat tax, everyone, regardless of their income, whether the, you're a low income uh, earner, whether you are Ken Griffin or one of his other wealthy uh friends and compatriots who helped to defeat this initiative, everybody pays the same tax rate. So the state of Illinois is actually an outlier in having a flat tax. Um, Ken Griffin, you know, I'm, I don't believe that he actually conceived of and executed the anti-tax campaign himself. But as we mentioned, he did f fund it, not the only one, but the primary funder of the initiative against the graduated tax. And they were really smart because at the time, this campaign was going on, Ben, uh, there were headlines all over the place about corruption, the latest corruption scandals in the state of Illinois and the city of Chicago. Um, in the middle of the campaign, for example, ComEd uh, admitted that it had participated in a bribery scheme with a certain public official who later was uh, confirmed was Michael Madigan and uh, ComEd agreed to pay uh, hefty fines for its role in the scandal. Um, of course, these, you know, 
these cases are still ongoing, but at the time that was in the news. And so the campaign against the tax really didn't talk about whether the tax was fair, where the money would go. It talked about it as another power grab by quote unquote Springfield politicians. And some of the ads ask directly, do you trust Springfield politicians? And most of us, if we heard that question would have to answer, well, no. Um, And so I would say they successfully, the opponents successfully managed to link the idea of a graduated tax in Illinois to the politicians who, uh, you know, were backing it and and the whole culture of Springfield at that time. All right. So uh, I'll delve into many of the issues you just raised. I was dutifully taking notes, so I won't forget them. Uh, but before I do, let me go back to something you said a little while ago, Mick, and get you uh, uh, to elaborate. Uh, you were talking about how you, um, you uh, and Paul did the article and you had uh, tax data uh, that ProPublica had previously obtained. Uh, without you Just go into an explanation, please, about what data you had uh, and how uh, ProPublica was able to obtain it well um a source uh i can't and and won't say more uh provided uh some a lot of information it's been described as a trove of tax information about some of the wealthiest people in the united states not just in the state of illinois but across the united states so propublica has uh, a trove of tax data and over the last couple years has written uh, a series of stories about what the tax data says uh, regarding how wealthy people in the united states pay or don't pay taxes um and the stories have uh looked at a, a variety of ways that uh, rich people uh, really aren't paying the same taxes the same way that most of the rest of us are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one quick example is uh, that a lot of wealthy people don't uh, get a regular income, or at least they don't get a sizable regular income. Um, you know, they're not often, uh, their wealth doesn't come in the income that that is reported on a W-2 form, for example. Um, So a lot of people will have income tied up in trusts or stocks or other kinds of holdings, other kinds of assets. And so uh, they're able to live off, um, in some cases off of borrowing money against all these assets um, without having much of an income. And getting back to taxation, what that means is that they, have relatively low tax rates compared to the wealth that they hold. And um, so that's just one example. This uh, story was an extension of that, Ben. Um, We had been very curious about uh, how much money Ken Griffin had spent on the anti-tax campaign, as well as a lot of other political campaigns in the state of Illinois. Um, And nationally, he's become one of the leading contributors to Republican candidates around the country in recent years. So we're really curious about that. And, uh, you know, wanted to compare some of his spending to uh, what he was paying in taxes and what he might have saved um, if this, uh, you know, when the graduate income tax didn't go through. So that was kind of the genesis of the story and and the backdrop about um, how we were able to do it. Now, uh, so again, uh, if uh, Ken Griffin had stayed in Illinois uh, and if his income had remained uh, roughly the same uh, over the next 10 years, he 
could have uh, uh, saved as much as $500 million if you do just the basic math. And I, I realize uh, that everything is a variable. We don't know if his, uh, his income would stay the same. Maybe it had gone up, in which case he would have saved more. But that's essentially the point uh, that uh, Mick and Paul made uh, in this very compelling article that I urge everyone to read. Uh, now, Mick, before I uh, play, play devil's advocate, uh, let me uh, ask you uh, why this matters. Uh, so if we have to fund government uh, and we're limited at how much we could tax uh, those people with the most to contribute without really damaging themselves, that means we have to rely on regressive forms of taxation uh, to pay for essential government services, uh, to pay for government. Uh, and that means it's what to use. I think a word you used to always tell me it's not sustainable. That's something I, I remember a McDumpkey word from way back when, Ben, this is not sustainable. <laughs> uh, you use that word and I, uh, that's a good word. Uh, I should use it more often. Uh, take a, a deep dive into that for a bit uh, and talk a little bit about uh, for, uh, funding government progressively or regressively. Well, I would say, you know, in simplest terms, I mean, the um, Illinois has uh, had budget and, and fiscal problems for decades. Um, in addition to uh, annual budgets, uh, where there is a deficit where, uh, you know, spending um, and commitments uh, to programs uh, are not matched by the revenues coming in, uh, people will know, people who listen to your show regularly will know, Ben, that uh, the state is billions of dollars in the hole on its uh, long-term obligations for pensions and, uh, and other matters. Um and how much, how many billions, that kind of depends on what day you're talking about and who you ask. But, you know, the, the state has deep financial problems. Um, and of course, you know, there is uh, the argument that it needs to do a better job of living within its means. Um, point well made. But that's a lot easier said than done. Uh, Bruce Warner came in, you recall, um, and tried to make some cuts that end up impacting, uh, in some cases, needy citizens, some of the neediest uh, around the state. Um, and uh, what's more led to a budget standoff with the Democratic-led uh, General Assembly that only deepened uh, the state's fiscal problems. Um, and I might add that the revenue problems, that the, the seeming shortfall of revenue or the imbalance between revenue and the state's obligations goes back a very long time. I found uh, actually in researching this story that the state didn't have an income tax of any kind until 1969. And at that time, um, the state was then as now uh, facing annual budget deficits. And finally, uh, a Republican, uh, Richard Ogilvie, uh, sat down with the Democrats, led at that time by Chicago Mayor Richard J. Daley, and they made a deal. They said, look, we're going to have to do something. We're going to have to impose an income tax. And uh, so they set one that I think at that point in time was 2.5% on individuals and 4% on corporations. Um, 
And, uh, and that was the start of this ongoing conversation about uh, who should be taxed and what the rate should be. Uh, but it all started back then. And I think it's really important to note that that came out of necessity, that you even had a Republican governor um, and uh, supported by some of his Republican colleagues who conceded, look, we can't do what the state needs to do without more revenue. And different versions of that discussion continue up till today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great history lesson uh, in the article. Another reason to read the article, ladies and gentlemen, the latter part of it goes into all this history. Mick, uh, I'm just going to take a moment to go on a brief tangent. I haven't forgotten. Uh, I, that's why I take notes. So I don't forget where I wanted to go before. But since you mentioned this, I got to talk. The Republican Party, this is one of McDumkey's favorite topics and mine. The Republican Party that existed in 1969, which was before McDumkey was born. Let's pause to think about that for a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> you weren't even born yet. That's okay. true. He That's was true. not born yet. Not, not even a gleam in my uh, parents' eyes. Nothing, Definitely. man. He didn't know about the Big yeah. Ted. He didn't know about Bob Dylan. He didn't know anything. <laughs> Ringo Starr. I never even heard of Ringo Starr. Wasn't born yet. Uh, but anyway, the Republican Party that existed in 1969 when Richard Ogilvy, uh, Republican governor of Illinois, uh, is far different in so many ways than the Republican Party that exists right now, which I, uh, my argument is it's really the MAGA party. And I just dealt with this um, with a, a column I wrote for the reader talking about even how different the Republican Party is now than it was five years ago. That's right. Bruce Rotter, who I fought tooth and nail over issues of uh, unionizing, collective bargaining, and uh, taxes, etc., was uh, a, a pro-choice Republican. It just blows my mind, Mick, to think of this. And he signed HB 40, which was the reproductive rights bill that eradicated the trigger language uh, in the state law book, which had it stayed on the state law book, abortion would now be illegal in the state of Illinois since Roe was overturned. And Mick, I just, when you start talking about Richard Ogilvy. It was like a different generation. That's right. Of Richard, yeah, Richard Ogilvy uh, was considered a moderate at the time, but really was a liberal on a lot of issues. I mean, I think he was probably more liberal than a lot of Democrats are today, right? Um, and you're right about Bruce Rauner signing the, uh, the abortion legislation, uh, which, you know, really... Uh, motivated the right wing of the Republican Party to, uh, you know, it, it set them against Bruce Rauner. And I think that it motivated them um, in a way that led to Darren Bailey winning the Republican nomination just Absolutely. a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, it, it got Jeannie Ives, uh, who was then, uh, frankly, a, a little known state legislator, uh, from the western suburbs, she uh, decided to run against Bruce Rauner in the primary um, in, I guess that was 2018, uh, largely because of that legislation, be, largely because of his support decision to sign off on that legislation. And um, she was supported by some of the same people financially and otherwise uh, who were behind Darren Bailey's campaign. So I think there's a straight line on that issue um, and a straight line on, on the tax issue. It's it's really interesting to me that um, a lot, this is another defining, put it this way. There's another defining characteristic of the Republican party right now is that um, even the people aligned with the Republicans who are not 
necessarily Trump MAGA people um, are still hanging in there because of taxation. Like they're, you know, I don't know if Ken Griffin, what he thinks about abortion. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I don't believe that he, um, there's no way to put it this way. There's no indication that he supported overturning the election or January 6th, any of that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you know, he continues to give money to members of the party, including members of the party who do support those things. Um, and his recent announcement that he is picking up and moving, he already has, he said, moved with his family to Florida and he's going to take his companies with him down there. Uh, where there is uh, no income tax and there is a populist uh, far right governor who probably does a bunch of things that uh, Ken Griffin may not love, but Ken Griffin gives him money and Ken Griffin decided to relocate there. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, uh, you know, that came on the heels of this tax fight in Illinois and the fact that Florida doesn't have an income tax. So what I'm saying is uh, what defines the Republican Party is you've got a uh, very loud far right contingent. And then you've got a lot of other supporters who are kind of going along with that, um, mostly because of money. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll go one step further since we're having this conversation. We had Dave McKinney on the show uh, a couple months ago. I urge everybody to check it out. It was a great interview with WBEZ, excellent reporter. Uh, and he had done the story about Kenny G uh, and the investments he made in gun manufacturing companies. And we went off about how Ken Griffin responded to the uh, article that uh, or the investigation that Dave uh, conducted and he didn't in any way address the merits of the points Dave uh, mentioned. He just simply used uh, MAGA talking points to assail him uh, in an ad hominem way. Uh, and uh, so my attitude about Ken Griffin, having watched him over the years, uh, based just watching how he behaves, uh, he's agnostic on these other issues, that the only issue that really matters to him in terms of where he'll put his money up uh, is the issue of taxation. It's to, to the broadest sense of the word and maybe uh, government oversight of financial institutions. He is a hedge fund operator. Uh, and so as a result, that's what he's looking for. He's looking for a politician, an elected official who will reduce his tax yield, the amount of money he has to pay in taxes. Uh, he was willing to support Bruce Rauner, who was openly pro-choice, ran on a pro-choice campaign in 2014. Uh, and then he turned right around uh, and he's supporting Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who uh, is against abortion rights. Uh, so uh, in, in between, he supported Rahm Emanuel. Don't forget. Um, contributor to, to Rom along the way. Um, yeah, he had and, three of his guys went to work for Rom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he got the best of both worlds with Rom, uh, and uh, yeah, he supported Rom and Daly. I believe he supported Baby Daly as well. Uh, isn't that funny, Mick? He became a very concerned about crime in the city of Chicago uh, when Baby Daly was no longer mayor. I remember when Richard M. Daly was mayor, and help me out, Mick, because you wrote about this extensively. There was a lot of murders and shootings in the city of Chicago. I'm not making this up. In the early part of this century, come on, Mick. A lot of people were killed in the streets of Chicago, and I do not recall. I do not recall the business community ever speaking up in defiance of the mayor saying, he better do more about this or we're going to move to Florida. Did I? Am I not remembering? I, I, I don't recall that either. Yeah, the numbers were definitely higher 
um, in the nineties. Uh, and, and then there were awful moments. Uh, there've been awful moments of, under every mayor, let's face it. Um, the numbers have gone up and down, but you're, you're not wrong that the city has had crime problems for quite some time. Um, and, uh, but that is what he has talked about. That's what he cited as a reason for moving to Florida. He didn't talk about tax rates. When we asked, we reached out to his, you know, uh, reached out to Mr. Griffin and, and heard from his spokesperson. Uh, the response um, didn't mention that Florida has no income taxes, but did harp on the fact that Chicago is having some issues with crime. Of course, didn't mention the fact that there's some crime in Miami as well. Right. So, um, very interesting uh, and somewhat selective ways you're you're talking about these things from Ken Griffin. Absolutely. Good choice of words. Somewhat selective. All right. Uh, I'm going to go back to the notes I scribbled uh, from the previous part of the conversation. Uh, and this is the segment of an interview I do whenever I discuss the issue of progressivity and taxation. I call it the Michael Girardi question. Uh, so named for uh, a dear friend of the show, uh, an avid listener. Uh, Mickey should know this. Michael Girardi uh, lives on the southwest side of Chicago. And I'm not making this up. He's a hell of a songwriter and a great guitar player. I call him the Neil Young of Chicago because he does some stinging guitar solos uh, and uh, a lot of anger that expressed in his lyrics a lot of times. But he has uh, pointed out on more than one occasion where I've had conversations with democratic socialists uh, that in his neck of the wood, nobody cares about this issue. Uh, and he's speaking in great generalities. Uh, he's part He's saying the reason why the fair tax initiative went down and the reason why Democrats should not uh, champion this as an issue in future elections is that most people, one, don't trust government, two, don't think that the money they spend uh, on government will go to them. It's going to somebody else, the other. OK, and three, to a larger degree, the they all want to get rich as well. Uh, and so they sort of like applaud the Kenny G's of the world who do whatever they can uh, to reduce their tax yield. So when you um, it, when you point out to them uh, that uh, if effectively uh, when they vote no on the fair tax, they're uh, lowering uh, Ken Griffin's uh, the amount he has to pay and putting more of a burden on themselves. They either don't believe you or don't care. So it's just a losing issue for the left and it's the left should abandon it. Uh, what's your uh, response uh, to that worldview? Well, I think, um, I, I mean, first of all, I can't argue with it. We had a vote on this, you know, less than two years ago in Illinois and the results bear that out. Um, I will say though that it depends on how it's framed. I think that polls and surveys before the fair tax vote um, has suggested that most people were in actually in favor of some kind of a graduated tax in the state of Illinois. Uh, but you're right, Ben, and, and you're, the friend of your show is Michael. Did you say his name is Michael Girardi? Yeah. Yeah. No, you can call Michael. Neil Young. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michael is right. Uh, I mean, I agree with Michael insofar as either of us is right. Um, that, uh, you know, people have to believe that the money is going somewhere. I mean, even something like the gas tax, uh, this is all taxes. You, you and I have talked about this before. We talked about it with Cook County's tax on soda uh, a few years ago, right? That 
first of all, nobody likes to pay extra tax. I don't like to pay it either. I'm sure you don't either. We would all like to keep more of our money, but people are willing to pay certain taxes or they're less opposed to it if they believe that the taxes are fairly imposed and they believe the money is going to something, um, ideally something that they themselves can use or benefit from, but at least they know that it's helping somebody. Um, And if there's just a sense that every time they're, looking up, here's another politician coming to them asking for more of their money for more taxes. People get sick of that stuff. Of course they do. And it just feels like it's just ridiculous. They don't believe the claims they're making. So I keep thinking about that sort of tax, which, you know, you and I discussed, we even had a debate about it at the hideout, right? That we we hosted Um, a great debate. Uh, Trivia points. Who were the debaters? Go short-term memory test. Uh, Larry Sufferdin was uh, supportive of the soda tax and Richard Boykin was right. uh, against it. It was a great yeah. debate. Great, great debate. Go ahead. Great debate. Yeah. So, you know, people, I, I remember doing my own uh, personal focus groups on this, like with my in-laws, okay, in, uh, <laughs> in the near suburbs of Cook County who just thought that these are uh, – mostly uh, progressive-minded, probably Democratic voting people for the most part, they thought the soda tax was absolutely outrageous. They thought it was a ridiculous tax on something uh, just to skim more money off them when they wanted to, you know, buy a a case of Coke once in a while, okay? Um, Whereas, you know, I would just make these arguments, well, you know, I they don't drink beer. I do occasionally like a beer and I'm like, well, I have to pay tax on beer. What, why, what's the difference? You know, you're paying a tax on soda. There are health implications for these things, but they just didn't believe that it was a fair tax and they didn't believe that it was going to anything that was helpful. They just thought it was a a politician's grab for money. And I think on a larger scale, uh, the income tax debate was, uh, was just like that times, you know, many times over uh, because everyone essentially everyone has to pay an income tax. You can choose not to buy soda pop. Right. So it was something that's really touched a nerve with a lot of people. And, um, and you're right, Ben, it's the same reason. Why, why did people vote for, why did, why do working class people, uh, why did they vote for and continue to support Donald Trump? He literally grew up in a penthouse in New York city He's nothing like them has never lived like them, but there's a lot of people who look at him and sort of aspire to the success that he's had yeah. and, and the lifestyle that he's been able to lead. So, yeah. well, they sure, they certainly aren't going to look at you and me, uh, as an example. <laughs> yeah. I want to be broke under, 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 underpaid guy in a, in a, you know, worn out bulls hat or an old tie dye. Uh, yeah, that's not what they're looking for. Yeah. I'll have you know that this is a recently purchased bulls hat. Uh, I, I said that I'm like, I'm kind of uh, slandering Ben here. He always, uh, has, has pretty nice bulls wear and, uh, you know, you, 
you, you wear them well too. Like, you know, you're not, you're not letting those hats get sweaty and sink into go. the shape of your head or anything like that. So uh, yeah. a brief shout out to Mick's wife, who is a regular on the show, Ramon Hussein. I get my bulls hats at the lids in Lincoln at the Lincolnwood mall, her hometown. So <laughs> let's just not forget that's my favorite lids. Shout out to the lids uh, in the Lincolnwood mall. Now, when you brought up the soda uh, tax, which was a favorite topic of mine, I love talking about it for all, all these uh, reasons. Uh, it's kind of come back in my mind, Nick. Uh, last week, we had a couple conversations uh, with Mark Wallace about um, red light cameras. Uh, and it, I, it made me think about the issue of the way in which, follow me on this, uh, politicians, uh, what's the, they, their messaging, that's the word. We need better messaging. And so Tony Preckwinkle, uh, when she brought out the soda tax, uh, first talked about the need uh, to uh, pay the essential bills. You know, t- Tony Preckwinkle can be very pragmatic, as you know, Mick. You've interviewed her many times over the years. Uh, and, uh, I think the word you once used to describe her was utterly humorless. Yes, you're afraid. Yes, I think humorless. utterly humorless. Not just humorless, but utterly humorless. <laughs> uh, at which point she told a joke. A a priest or rabbi in it. No. All right. Anyway, so um, uh, and then uh, when she came under pressure uh, for Boykin and others, uh, she flipped it uh, and began arguing that it was actually uh, part of a just a larger health initiative uh, to deter people from uh, drinking uh, sugar flavored uh, beverages, which I thought was an interesting spin. And, and nobody believed that either. And it went down. Now I watch this thing. I don't know how much you follow this stuff, Mick, but we follow pretty closely on the show. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot trying to get the Chicago city council to uh, raise uh, the threshold for ticketing in a red light camera district from uh, being six miles an hour uh, over to 10 miles uh, over or right. Well, she's fighting an effort to cut it actually. Anyway, the point is uh, she's made two arguments at once. One, uh, we need the money. Two, how dare you do anything that would endanger one life? <laughs> I'm like, well, it's got to be one or the other. Because if you deter people from speeding, they won't speed, and therefore the lives won't be at stake. But you won't have as much money uh, in, the, you know, uh, the coffers of the city. So it's got to be one or another. But, of course, the underlying assumption is that the voters of the city of Chicago are complete morons, and you can tell them anything, and they're not paying attention anyway, so you get away with anything. That last comment was mine and mine alone. It does not make donkeys. Mick, uh, do you see the balancing act that's going on here with these politicians? Absolutely. Um, First of all, I believe that it's usually almost always about the money primarily. Uh, But, you know, sometimes it is about another issue. And if I were there, no one's listening to me and no one should for political advice. But I will say it anyway, if I were them, why not just be upfront about it? Why not just say, look, we need money. I think this is a good way to do it because at the same time we're raising money, there's a chance we can get drivers to slow down uh, or there's a chance that we can get people to maybe think twice about drinking as much soda as they've been drinking. And we think that's a benefit. We think that's a winning way to do this whole thing. Um, People may not like it, but at least there would be a little bit more credibility to those arguments, but that's not what they do. You're right. It's always sort of masqueraded as it's all one thing or it's all another thing. Um, And 
wow, people were really hot about that soda tax, as you and I recall. It really touched a nerve with a lot of people. And there's a lot of people, as I've discovered, who are really uh, feel very strongly one way or another about the speed cameras as well. I dared to tweet out a story that um, a couple of my colleagues wrote about the speed camera debate. And I was uh, almost tarred and feathered uh, by uh, bicycle advocates and people who are vehemently against uh, rolling back the speed camera program in any way. I respect their position. Um, I uh, got a little frustrated with their style and um, ended up regretting my exchange on Twitter very much. Ben, you don't even go there on Twitter, and that's very smart. Someday I will learn my lesson, <laughs> that lesson as well. Uh, but the, the bigger point, and, and just if in case any of them are listening, I love y'all. It's fine. All in the spirit of discussion, debate, I can take it uh, and uh, uh, appreciate the, the feedback and, and even the snotty comments. I uh, appreciate those on some level, too. Thank you for watching and listening and caring what I have to say. Uh, but back to this issue, you're right, Ben. It's a really political thing. It touches a lot of nerves in different directions. But I, for one, again, just wish that our political leaders would come out and say, look, we need and want more money. We think this is the fairest or the safest or the uh, – you know, has the most public benefit. That's the best way to do it, but yeah. not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And, uh, and see, this gets back to the issue of, of funding government. Uh, if we're uh, incapable of uh, defeating the nihilism that's at root in uh, the opposition, as Michael Girardi cited, it's, and Michael's just being a dutiful reporter, uh, but it's a very nihilistic argument to make for people from the Northwest and Southwest side, make many of whom are pensioners. Hello. <laughs> right. Hello. <laughs> you know, uh, it's like, wow, you just, you're just going to pretend like you're not getting a pension, huh? And there's uh, guys in Florida it, uh, and I, Mick, I know I'm not going to name names. Uh, retired police officers living in Florida, happily voting for Ron DeSantis and bragging, Mick, I'm not making this out, that there's no state income tax uh, in the Florida because they don't have a big pension liability. And I'm right. like, dude, I'm literally paying your rent, you unappreciated mother. Anyway, uh, I we know, have, I know. I, I take what Girardi says very seriously, uh, and we have to come up with a way, even if it's just saying soak the rich, uh, of doing a better job, to put it mildly, of dealing with the Phyllis commercials. Uh, that was the commercial you were alluded to. Uh, where you know, Springfield politicians say that and that. Kenny <laughs> <laughs> got that down, got that down you know. pretty well. You, you heard a lot of those commercials while you were watching Bulls games that year, didn't you? Wow. Well, yeah. uh, Dennis... Uh, routinely played them we we really took the deep dive in the phyllis commercials uh and uh so this is a topic uh we could talk about at great length uh, another time before i let you go make just some general uh curveballs i'm going to throw at you uh mick Dumkey is a political geek of the highest order uh, he may not cover all these news events on a regular basis but he obsessively follows them as much as i do 
And uh, so I'm going to throw a and I did not tell him I was going to ask him about this. That's right. I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting. I'm waiting to hear. It's called improv, what kind of a, Yeah, what kind of a, a awkward spot you're going to put me in. Go for it. Go All right. for it. So this yeah. one I shared already uh, with Romana. This one is hilarious in, in its own way, but it'll raise. Uh, I just have to. Uh, <laughs> I'm just chuckling at this one. Uh, so anyway, there's an article in the New York Times. This is how obsessive I am uh, about a primary, an epic primary clash. Uh, between uh, two ancient uh, Democratic legislators, two ancient Democratic Congress people, uh, Gerald Nadler and Carol Maloney, Carolyn Maloney, uh, their incumbents who were, because of uh, redistricting, have been put in the same district, a wealthy district in uh, Manhattan, and they're going at it. It's like Marie Newman versus Sean Caston, only more money, okay? And they're both in their 70s. They've been around a long time. I didn't realize this until I read this article in the New York Times. There's this kid running. He's very ambitious young man in his 30s, Siraj Patel. Uh, he's running. He's basically saying, these two people are ancient. Why should we allow them uh, to, to continue being ancient <laughs> in office? It's okay to be ancient out of office. Uh, and it seems to be uh, hitting a nerve. So the, the reporter, good job. I always like to give reporters shout out, Nick, because, you know, they nobody else does. Nicholas Fandos is his name. Uh, shout out, Nicholas. Uh, and uh, so this guy, I got to give Nicholas Fandos credit, Nick. Uh, he's going around asking people in the district what they think about this argument that these people have been serving too long. And he comes upon uh, this woman who I will spare her the embarrassment of reading her name. She's 35 uh, <laughs> and she's a software engineer. Uh, she was blunt as she walked laps during her lunch break uh, around Stuyvesant Town, one of the largest voting blocks in the district. Quote, we just need new blood, she said. The boomers are going. They don't know how the new world works. End of quote. But does she plan to vote in August? The primaries right right in the corner. Probably, she laughed, adding that she had not been aware of the primary date until a reporter informed her. Come on! <laughs> like, that sums it up millennials yeah, that, didn't even know there was an election coming that packs a lot into uh, a few lines doesn't it we, yeah. we get a lot out of the state of the world just in those few lines totally yeah yeah i gotta give fandos a lot of credit i'm sure he's a millennial too okay so he appreciates mick how could we turn over confidently the future to and, and she's obviously an educated woman, software engineer, I presume, you know, she's educated, doesn't even know there's an election. I'm sorry, Mick. I know you chastised me when I made fun of the 30 year old on Patrick Daly Thompson's juror, jury who never heard of the dailies. Uh, you and a lot of younger people made fun of me. But come on, Mick, <laughs> how low are we going to allow the bar to be lowered before we start holding people in our country accountable for their ignorance about what the democracy they supposedly uh control go ahead well i think the i think millennials of which i'm not one of course uh i'm a gen xer and uh if there's anybody who should have a gripe it's us because we've totally the boomers never let go the millennials have already crowded in and it's whatever generation is after the millennials already wants their piece and the gen xers we didn't we didn't do or get anything out of the deal so uh but anyway i digress um I mean, what can I say? I, I think that uh, 
or I know what I started to say was that the millennials would say you're vote shaming, Ben. You're not supposed to be Hell doing yeah, that. vote shaming. So, God damn. So, uh, you know, that's their position on it. I've always thought that we had a responsibility. I was taught that we had not just a right, but a responsibility to participate in civic affairs, including voting. But, you know, the truth is it's people's uh right to not vote if they want to. Um, it's frustrating. I actually, um, yes, I, I wish there was a higher level of citizen engagement, um, not just in voting, but in getting educated before people vote. Uh, but I also think that, you know, this is a challenge for the younger generations, for the post boomer generations, all of us still waiting in the wings, essentially, uh, that, uh, you know, people need to organize, they need to educate, they need to do the work. Um, and yes, people, you know, out there, the, the public needs to do its job, but uh, you can't wait around for people to get it. Uh, you know, those who want to see changes need to do the work to, convince people and try to get them on board. I mean, that's as simple as it gets, I think. Right. I mean, no, there was a song. I, 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 there was a song. That, I think it was a Gen Xer. It's kind of maybe the Gen X problem. <laughs> uh, uh, the, We're all the, the same. The guitar yeah. player. I know you're all the same. Everybody younger than me is the same. Yeah. Uh, John Mayer. Isn't he the guitar player? Isn't that? Yeah, it's, yeah. All right. He had a song. It was a big hit back in the nineties. I remember cause uh, I heard of, even I, crack the bubble I put around myself to protect me from uh, current music. Uh, but it was something along the line. We're just going to wait for change to happen. I'm like, man, what the hell kind of song is that? What, what happened to Della? Come gather around people wherever you roam. I mean, come on, man. We're just going to wait for stuff to happen. Is that out? Is that the attitude? So, uh, all right, I'm going to get, I'm going to stop shaming. And you're yeah, right. I, 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 listen, I, I personally have never been a John Mayer fan, uh, myself. Um, so I would not lift him up as an example. <laughs> uh, but I know some of my friends do like him because now he tours with the remnants of the yes. dead. Um, he's part of the dead and company. So I, I, I will admit I'm, I'm not a dead head Ben. I do like the dead. Uh, so I'll, I'll give him a nod for that. But yeah, there's other people you can look to and Hey, uh, the younger generations are certainly outspoken. Um, a lot of the artists are very outspoken. So, you know, go to Kendrick Lamar instead of John Mayer if you're looking for some inspiration okay. about getting involved. All right, fair enough. All right, so what I was leading to this uh, is uh, the growing movement uh, that's been expressed on this show for a while anyway, uh, that Joe Biden should not run for re-election. Uh, that he's just, um, well, there, there's many different uh, reasons cited uh, for why he should not run for re-election. Some is just that he's just too old and too tired uh, and doesn't have the energy just as a, like a marketing tool, to use the word we've been using all day. Uh, and, and the other is, by a lot of my uh, lefty friends, he uh, is not forceful enough on the issues that matter most to us. Uh, and therefore, we feel like we have no leadership uh, at this crucial time when we're facing all these threats. Uh, so those are two fronts. Uh, and, and the chorus seems to be growing uh, louder that he should uh, wait until after the midterms and then announce he's not running for reelection. Uh, he will serve his purpose of having defeated Donald Trump, save the country from Trump uh, and then allow the younger generation. Watch Bernie would be the nominee. Uh, but anyway, the younger uh, generation uh, to take the leadership. Your thoughts on this growing movement? Well, I think that um, 
there is a feeling that there hasn't been strong or forceful enough leadership from Joe Biden uh, that, that actually goes across the political spectrum at this point in time. I think even people who like Joe Biden appreciate um, his uh, the sort of measured quality of Joe Biden. Um, they appreciate the fact that uh, he has experienced, you know, uh, my, my brother always called my brother, who's also a political junkie, always uh, described him as uh, the old brown shoe, you know, before the last election. <laughs> we just we just want a comfortable old brown shoe to put on right now because uh, things are really crazy. And no, he's not the really the answer to our hopes, dreams, prayers, but like, we just got to put on the old brown shoe for now. And I, I actually have, have come to sort of think that is an apt metaphor, but people are kind of tired of the old brown shoe. They want something else. They need, we need something more. Um, I think there are a lot of very difficult issues this country faces, and uh, there's a vacuum of articulate leadership at almost every level of government right now. Um, I would say, the same without getting into a whole conversation about Lori Lightfoot and her tenure. Uh, the one thing I would definitely say is that um, I, I just don't, I just don't hear a message about how we're supposed to feel about, for instance, crime and safety in the city of Chicago. Um, she's not the first mayor to struggle with this issue, but like, what's the message? You know, why should we feel, okay, it just feels like there's nothing there. There's not a lot of articulate leadership on the issue. And I think the same thing is true uh, for Joe Biden at the federal level is uh, people want to hear, um, don't expect this study could snap his fingers and deal with inflation, but like they would like to hear something definite and articulate. Now about the actual election, Ben, your question, it's the old adage. Um, it, it's maybe the... Uh, sort of a corollary of to the old adage of you can't beat somebody with nobody. Well, you can't replace somebody with nobody either. So, okay. Biden isn't it for you. Then who is, who is Yeah, Bernie Sanders? He's almost as old as Joe Biden, not a solution to the problem uh, of certainly of age and, and energy going forward um, in, in my book. So who is it that's going to step forward who is it that you would prefer i haven't really heard a lot of great answers to that question all right uh well we'll put that aside uh on the national level for another time but you stole my next and final question literally you literally stole it and i could prove it by uh showing you the notes except they're written in such scrawl that you wouldn't be able to read them so you have to take my <laughs> word for it uh and i was going to say I can't believe he did this, folks. I've been having so many conversations with McDumkey. I know what he's going to say before he says it. That's so right. I was going to say, McDumkey has a favorite saying, you can't beat somebody with nobody. Uh, and so I was going to close with a Chicago question. So uh, usually say that, Mick, in regards to when I would be calling you right around 2018. Is somebody going to beat Rom? I can't stand another day of Rom as mayor. And, and you would say, Ben, you can't beat somebody with nobody. So, <laughs> Mick, when you, when you look at the current uh, array of people who have announced that they will be running against Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, in the mayor's race, of next year do you see uh, uh somebody in that race or are they all 
nobodies. Go. Uh, I think there's a couple of people who could emerge as somebody's, but let's go back to when I was quoting this, somebody else said it, not me, but at this point in time, I'm basically quoting myself when I say it, because I don't remember who said it originally. Um, you know, it turned out that in 2019, actually people did kind of vote for nobody over somebody like they knew Rom. They didn't know Lori at all. And that was one of the reasons why they voted for her. They wanted someone who was totally different. I mean, yes, she made a lot of promises. She said a lot of the things people wanted to hear. Um, but it was I interpreted it as a rejection of known politicians entirely right um because we had i think anticipated um that ron was going to walk away with it if he ran and then when he announced that he wasn't going to run it looked like it was probably tony preckwinkles to lose yeah. um and secondarily you know bill daly or uh that was sort of the other big name in there but there were a couple other people who were recognizable figures around town in a way that Lori Lightfoot definitely was not. And yet people decided, oh, you know, she's a blank slate, but she sounds pretty good. So I'm going to go with that. Um, are we going to have the same kind of election this time? I, I don't think so. My guess is just like people have tried that once and people are unhappy with Lori Lightfoot. I'm not sure they're going to go with a, a real unknown again. So I think that's a challenge for these candidates, uh, most of whom are either kind of obscure politically uh, for, for casual followers of politics, or they're so well-known that people are sick of them, uh, like Paul Vallis. Uh, but I don't know. It's such a weird time in politics. This is where I'll come down, Ben. It's such a weird time in politics that, like, forecasting is a fool's game Absolutely, at this yeah. point in time. Anything can happen. Anything, anybody could get elected. Um, I know... People were talking about Darren Bailey. Obviously, Pritzker's team thought that he would be an easier opponent than Richard Irvin. I don't like that game um, if you're a Pritzker person. I think that's really very foolish. I mean, gas prices keep going up. Darren Bailey could be the next governor. I mean, Absolutely. you know, it's just like he's on the ballot. He's an option. So I just don't think you can sit around thinking that he's not going to get elected. Doesn't anybody remember 2016? Uh, so. I you know, uh, listen, I just wrote about this. This is fresh in my mind. Shout out Rick Pearlstein, Nixon land. Uh, and uh, I, I hated I the, the strategy that uh, the Democrats follow, not just here in Illinois, but in Pennsylvania as well, uh, promoting the candidacies of MAGA. Uh, I take very seriously uh, the threat to democracy that they represent. And I take very seriously. It's I feel like in many ways is me, not Mick, that we're on the road to fascism. I take it very serious. Uh, and I believe they have to be defeated. And so anything that a Democrat does to encourage uh these MAGA uh, fascistic types to be in a position where they can take power is frightening uh, to me. And then I stumbled upon an old passage in Nixon land by Rick Perlstein, a great book. I urge everyone to read it if you haven't already, uh, where he talked about how Nixon had a very similar strategy in 1972, uh, manipulating the democratic primary in order uh, to see that George McGovern uh, would be uh, the winning candidate who, uh, 
Nixon figured would be the easiest to defeat. Uh, I note that Nixon won that la- uh, election in a landslide. So maybe the Democrats emulating Richard Nixon is not such a bad thing, but it's uh, a frightening thing nonetheless. And so I'm with you uh, very much, uh, McQuinn. Uh, and then, you know, I could talk myself out of it so easy because I don't know what's the difference between an out and out MAGA guy and uh, a candidate, uh, a more quote unquote moderate candidate who's too chicken to stand up to MAGA. Yeah, so really, what's that, the that point is definitely well made. I, I still think there are differences. I mean, there are too, way too many Republicans siding with people who are working to undo our democracy. Let's be clear about that. Um, but there are some degrees of difference and there are some people, I think still within the party who are not fully on board with all of that. Um, that's what I'd like to think at least. And probably some of your listeners will think I'm naive, uh, but I, I think, I think we have to yeah. hope for that. I mean, I think we have to yeah. not just hope, but I think we, you know, people who want to preserve our democracy have to fight for that and have to try to win people over. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's to, this, we to that point, we'll, we'll, we'll do a circle. And I feel very strongly about this. Richard Irvin's campaign, the campaign that just crashed, even though uh, Kenny G, the aforementioned Ken Griffin, was successful in blocking the fair tax. He was unsuccessful. Uh, in electing uh, his candidate, Richard Urban, in the recent uh, primary. My, I had many problems with the Richard uh, Urban campaign, but near the top of the list is the fact that he didn't position himself as a Liz Cheney Republican. And he didn't say, and I think uh, Joe Biden is our president. He was elected. uh, He got more votes. Uh, And uh, it was a clean election. You've fallen for a lie. And furthermore, that lie led to an attempted coup. And I'm against it. And then he could be, you know, the right winger on tax issues. You know what I'm saying, Mick? Run. You could then do your conventional Republican stuff against abortion. That's where he's coming from. Although he's probably pro-choice, he's concealing that. But Liz Cheney's against abortion. You see what I'm saying, Mick? Adam Kinnear's against abortion. yeah, yeah, not only for political positioning, but just because that appears to be who the guy is. Yes. You know, he is someone who um, wasn't a far-right Republican or hasn't been in his public life until this point. And then all of a sudden, this sort of masquerade as somebody else people saw right through it 50 million dollars you know couldn't fool that many people yes. uh and so it was just a it was really a terrible campaign it was a terrible set of decisions that he made and in in addition to you know going down in flames as a candidate i think it was really really bad for our democracy in the state of illinois you know to basically say I am going to appeal to this group of people who are in denial of the truth and, um, you know, working to or, or have voiced support for und- undoing democracy. And I'm going to just kind of play footsie with them so that I can try to win a primary here. Then I'll be who I really am. That is that's a dangerous game. Absolutely. And, and you know, while, while I think um, it's very unfortunate, all of that, like, he deserved to lose. I mean, he deserved to lose. So, uh, and uh, but I I don't know the answer to this, Mick. Had he run as a Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger Republican in that primary, 
where he's right wing on everything except for, well, his belief in democracy. I don't know that he would have won the primary. I guarantee you he would have finished at least second. I don't think he would have lost to Jesse Sullivan as well. I believe that reaching out to the John Porter types who must, there's an ancient name. I I remember, forget I said that ladies and gentlemen, uh, to, to uh, Republicans who of Richel Ogilvy go back to him, that type of Republican, I believe he would have stayed true to who he is. I believe he would have offered a, a, a service to the people of Illinois by showing that there's a segment of the Republican party that's uh, does not believe in coups uh, and believes in democracy. Uh, and then I would have been f- fighting like hell to defeat him in November, but I would have felt better about him uh, as a public official. So I don't know. Do you think he would have won? Do you think- I, don't, I don't know either. I, that's a good question. It's hard to say. I think, you know, if we're going to defend him in any way, like the path forward through a Republican primary right now is really difficult. If you're not like, you know, part of the, the MAGA crowd, you know, you have to define yourself against the grain essentially uh, where everything is, is moving right now. Uh, but I agree with you. I think it would have been a service for the public and just politically, I think he would have come out looking a lot better. I think that his prospects looking forward right now, um, you never know. There's so many second and third acts in politics, but like right now, boy, they look really dim. He looked like a hapless candidate who wasn't truthful with voters. And I think you could have come out of this, even if you had lost uh, looking pretty good. Like I'm a different kind of politician. I'm a different kind of Republican right now. And maybe that would have been a losing gamble but like if the party ever swings in the other direction this is a guy who would sit there poised you know ready to be a leader and instead he just looks like he tried to you know appease people and be somebody he wasn't and do all the things we just talked about and it's really a disaster all right mick uh before we let you go, why don't you uh, just promote uh, one more time uh, ProPublica. Well, you haven't done it yet. Uh, promote the site. Tell people where they can read your work, uh, especially this last article uh, that you and Paul just wrote. So uh, give out the information. Sure. ProPublica.org. ProPublica is a, uh, a nonprofit journalism organization. We do deep dive investigative reporting, mostly about abuses of power. And um, in addition to the story that we're talking about, I think your audience, Ben, could find a lot of other stuff they're interested in uh, on this site. There was a great story just very quickly by a colleague of mine who wrote about a conservative group um, that is has gotten basically IRS approval to uh, – can call themselves a church for yeah. tax purposes. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a lot of stories like that. So people who are interested, propublica.org, uh, uh, please check it out. Very good. Thanks, Mick. And uh, we'll bring Mick back uh, real soon, folks. He's doing another, uh, well, I'm not allowed to say what he's doing. I apologize, Mick. But we're going to be talking about uh, the CHA story, which is a uh, local journalism 
at, at its finest. So, so uh, thank you very much. Uh, for, thank you very much, Mick, for taking time to come talk to us. Appreciate it a lot. I love that tie dye shirt you're wearing. Uh, and I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Mick and Romana will tell you, back home on Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody.